My name is Michael Barker. I am the co-president of Sony Pictures Classics, and I have come here to introduce Ann Thompson and Eric Cohn. There's Eugene, Mr. IndieWire, Mr. Film Society of Lincoln Center. Anyway, um, here's why I wanted to do this. When Eric said, are you interested in doing this? Um, when we're in Cannes, we think about film culture. We think about the preservation of film culture. And uh, we see great films, we see poor films. The fact of the matter is, there is a real issue of the loss of quality film culture. And one of the reasons that's an issue has to do with how films are made and which the people that decide to make them. Another reason for that is in this time of acceleration of technology, where there's a new discovery or new movement every day or two, and we don't have enough time, our brain can't move fast enough to wrap around it. A lot of people are forgetting that we are losing major film critics who have guided audiences to films. We are losing a, a voice that can guide people because right now we are at a time when there's a limited number of hours of leisure time we have and between going to the movies, between seeing the, the next Trump nightmare every day, between uh, taking it up with television and sports and movies, the most important thing to preserve film culture is for the quality work or the work that's really valid is to be noticed, is to become distinctive. <laughs> And, and we need help. I need help when I'm looking for a movie or a television show to see now. And that's me, and I've been, I'm an avid viewer. And I think we really need to praise these two people because both Anne and Eric, they are the present and future voice that's worth listening to. I wouldn't necessarily agree with them all the time. It's important to have your own opinion. Uh, but they, have a, they, they will give you an intelligent opinion. And it won't be glib. It won't be, you know, short and sweet. It will be something that, that has uh, brain power to back it up. And they will help you decide what to see and make you more of an informed viewer in this age. And I tell you... Uh, people like me really appreciate IndieWire, and I, I've known Anne for decades, and uh, I've known Eric for a really long time, and we have to fight to keep them as well as to protect film culture and get it out there what's quality in film culture so those films don't get lost. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Anne and Eric. And give it up for Michael Barker. Thank you so much, Michael. I don't know how we can top that. <laughs> hello, hello. I think it's also great to have uh, somebody from Sony Pictures Classics introduce us because, boop, you know, boop, boop, it's, boop. it's kind of, I mean, just, just to briefly on this point, it's kind of fascinating that we, we talk a lot about the changing landscape and the new players and so forth, often to the detriment of recognizing that certain people are consistent in what they're doing. And I think Sony Pictures Classics is a good example. No question. 
They're here with Briggs Bear. They're going off to the lunch for Briggs Bear, which we may or may not make at this stage. Um, but they're consistent and from Elle and Michael Haneke and Isabelle Huppert and all the things that they've done over the years. We have a great deal to thank them for. Thank you. And so we started off the festival last week when we were talking about um, you know conversations we expected to really be the core of Con this year. Looking at who these new players are and how they're changing conversations, the so-called disruptors, Netflix being chief among them. And what was interesting at that point was that we hadn't seen those movies. And so this whole situation with the French exhibitors really being ticked off at Netflix and Con changing its rules for future editions, none of that really told us you know, whether or not all of this you know, hectic dialogue was going to be worth anything. I mean, if these movies got booed the way the Netflix logo before them was, uh, we might not be as concerned about this situation. But the movies played really well. And I think there is something to be said for the fact that Okja and the Meyerowitz stories, the Bong Joon-ho film and the Noah Baumbach film, uh, were produced by a company that has very deep pockets and is enabling filmmakers to do things that they may or may not have been able to do otherwise. And so on some level, I have to say... Part of the can narrative for me is that my, my views on Netflix are evolving, and I'm curious to know how they're evolving across the industry at this point, given how well these films have played. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that on some level there is a kernel of goodness to what's going on with Netflix, irrespective of you know, what they may sort of uh, represent as, as far as the future of the theatrical experience? Well, a lot of the buyers here at Cannes um, have very strong, angry feelings about about Netflix inside the industry. And it's a question about how you define them. Are they a movie company? Are they a television company? Um, some people would just say, forget those distinctions. It's just filmed entertainment, Content. however you define it. Um, you know, should they be competing for Emmys with serial uh, projects? Should they be uh, competing for Oscars with two-hour movies that are playing at Cannes? And it, you know, if they're playing the movies in just a few theaters, day and date, which will be B-tier theaters or IPIX, which is the theater chain they are packed with, um, will Oscar voters take them seriously and will they be able to reach that uh, plateau that they have not reached with narrative movies. They do very well with, with documentaries which are also really funded by and seen by most people on television or Netflix, whatever you want to call it. And so these definitions are very strange And but in the business uh, world as far as finding good content for the um, spectrum of theatrical distribution companies, Netflix puts such an enormous burden on them, and so does Amazon, in terms of driving up the prices, because they still have to exist in the old universe. Right, exactly. They, they can't overspend on movies like an e-commerce site can. But the other thing that's interesting in this context is that can is such a bizarre universe in which it's really hard to quantify what the value is. You know, if you're just looking at the budget to understand, you know, what sort of return on investment you're going to get from Cannes when you're not necessarily going there to acquire new movies, but rather as a platform for them. It's hard to get a sense for exactly what that is. And Netflix coming to Cannes, you know, they threw a big bash here, which they'd never done before. I think we're seeing them start to try to understand what is the real value of a festival like this 
when you already have audiences all over the world. Well, what's interesting to me is that Ted Sarandos, who's the content officer at Netflix, who's been in the movie business, if you like, for a very, very long time. Um, he has, he's, a, he's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. He's trying to uh, get onto the board as, as a governor. He's running for one of those spots, which I highly doubt the other Academy members will vote him in. Um, uh, we've, we've, we've suggested that he's like the fox in the hen house, you know, because now Netflix really is a threat. Netflix really is a disruptor. It's not just a little tiny entity that's making things difficult. Um, it's threatening the very studios and their existence. And um, the, I almost look at the studios, if you look at Cannes, there really aren't any big studio movies here. There was one movie... Um, the uh, Inconvenient sequel, which was put up, you know, Paramount's going to release that. That didn't get much attention here because it was already at it was Sundance. A, a documentary about Al Gore is not the paradigm of studio filmmaking, although, you know, I'd love to see us move it's in that not, direction. It's not a representative of it at all. But um, so it's, it's an interesting, you know, so, so you have, you have the, the, but the reason that Noah Baumbach and um, Bong Joon-ho are in the main competition at Cannes really speaks to another thing, which is that the programming of the festival, and if you look at the, um, the Screen International reviews every day and you see the stars that all the movies are getting, they're actually getting worse reviews than usual. There, there, isn't as, there aren't as many really well-reviewed movies here as you would usually have. And so I suspect, honestly, that Terry Frimo, in search of his auteurs, his prized auteurs, that's what he's looking for, he went to Noah Baumbach and he went to Bong Joon-ho and he didn't think about Netflix. He thought about the movies that he needed, and he got into some trouble. I think he should have actually anticipated the trouble he, sort of he got into. into it. He stumbled yeah. into it. But again, I mean, this is we're seeing the industry work through all these different wrinkles in real time. I mean, that he had a relationship with, say, Scott Rudin, who produced the Baumbach movie, or the Plan B people who produced Bong Joon-ho. That was sort of the natural channel that he would go to. That's right. And so, and so the the. You know, at the big party up at the mansion with the shuttle buses going up all night long, you did have, you know, the smattering of the top industry people and the top producers and the top filmmakers and the people that were affiliated with Netflix and the top press or whatever you want. And it was the biggest party of the festival. And that would have been New Regency or it would have been one of the studios in years past. And, and it wasn't. And then the other thing is that in order to get his auteur Terry Fremo had to go to Jane Campion with Top of the Lake, which was one of the best things I saw here, by far. And you didn't even see all the episodes I didn't yet. see all six. I saw the first two, like many of the other press who didn't have time because they had deadlines. Um, but the, and, and then the other, uh, the other big event was the Inuri 2 VR experience, uh, Carne y Arena. And again, Inuritu is the first person to say, this is not a film. This is not cinema. This is something entirely different. 
And when it comes to the Los Angeles County Museum or your local museum, wherever you may live, I highly recommend that you experience this because it's extraordinary. And again, Thierry Frimo, who's supposedly championing the two-hour movie or the long movie, if you like, if he's happy to do that, he, he went for this short experience because it was an auteur, because it was in your because it was an artist that can had championed who I was think pushing the boundaries. The, 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 the bottom line here is what I personally love about Can is, and what I initially perceived as being elitist is actually an incredible asset, which is that something to play here has to be good. And if it's not good, then the automatic question is, why is it here? We don't always go to festivals and ask those questions immediately. That doesn't mean that everything they show here is good. No, and they have, they're subjected we to the same flaws as lots of arguments of with them. Politics and uh, favoritism and all kinds of different things. What was the I mean, worst thing you've seen so far? It's a really tough question because I tend to avoid the things I think I'm going to hate. When you, the more homework that you do, the better you can sort of work around these things. But I will say a few, a few things that I was disappointed by, one of which was uh, The Square from Ruben Ostland, which uh, you know, is the, the follow-up from the guy who did Force Majeure, which played here in the Uncertain Regard section a few years ago. Um, I just felt like it was sort of a movie without a center, with a lot of really brilliant scenes and, and a movie that didn't congeal out of them and it was just uh, it was disappointing to me because it really felt like a wave of confidence from the previous film that led to one that was almost too confident and uh, it just didn't didn't work for me the way that I was really pulling for it to to work so that so that was a bit of a letdown apparently uh, he didn't finish editing the movie this is one of this is an example they have these over the years Sad old story. where people just submit something and they get in and they're not even finished. I mean, Lynn Ramsey didn't even know they were submitting her movie and suddenly you're in Cannes and she wasn't finished. Careful she with your finish it, you know. So, so that's, that's a shocker. Uh, we'll see that tomorrow. But yeah. um, the, the, uh, I think the, the question of, of actually being able to, to present Cannes with your finished final film is something filmmakers need to remember to keep in mind. So he's going to go back to the editing room. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in Magnolia's putting that out in the United States. It's got Elizabeth uh, Moss in it, but she's not a prominent character. So in terms of how that movie you know, plays to the North American market, it's really hard for me to say, but it's been interesting to see here it really divides people. Um, There's some brilliant uh, stuff in it, and is. I thought your review, actually a great review by you, of the ones you've written Thank already. Um, I it like was, it when she disagrees with me, I, too. I, I sometimes like what, what, what you have to say. Um, he, he actually uh, gave, gave a really strong argument for how there's too many stories in the one movie. It's a very busy movie. But this is such a challenging environment to process really ambitious movies, too, because you're seeing things at the crack of dawn, you're seeing things late at night, you have maybe an hour or two hours in between things to share your thoughts with the world, unless you're just one of those rabid tweeting types, which I, try, I tend to be kind of cautious about that sort of thing. So it's, so it's hard if you see something. I'm the like rabid that. tweeting yeah. type. I'm always like, Anne, calm down a little bit. you know, Because then, then it gets sent out to all the media, and you never really know how these things are going to be perceived. I will say that I was kind of fascinated by the reactions to The Beguiled yesterday from Sofia Coppola. It's a movie that is obviously very much anticipated back home where we're from. And over here, I think, even more so because she's an auteur. The I last think time of her she, is a European, too. Yeah, and the last time she was in competition was Marie Antoinette, which was, you know, a decade ago, was, was not 
well received. I think it has more of a sort of a cult thing going for it now. Then Bling Ring with open the uncertain regard section kind of brought her back into the family a little bit. It wasn't a huge hit, but it wasn't it a huge bomb. It didn't get great reviews. It was it was, it did you know, it wasn't as bad because it was in the it was in a section they where They did it that to defend her. Yeah, they exactly. did that so that she wouldn't be over scrutinized. Yes, yeah, that, that, that's where the politi- the politics in a way kind of come back into the conversation here. Now that it's back here, I mean, I have to say you know, the movie was everything I expected and not a whole lot more. And it, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, a couple of years ago she was going to make The Little Mermaid. You know, this is a filmmaker who's really on a constant quest to figure out how do you evolve with a certain sensibility in an audience to reach people in, in new and exciting ways. One of the things that I'm excited by is that as, as I was going through uh, the movies I was watching, I kept having this experience of feeling like the women's roles were underwritten especially the Marywitz stories, which is so much about the men in the movie. And I was really unhappy with the Godard movie, uh, Redoubtable, where uh, the woman character, Ann Wiechemski's character, is so underwritten. That's the um, point in the movie, but we argued last week. We argued that we week. <laughs> so this week, I'm going to say that I did get to see some movies with fabulous women uh, characters in them, and one of them is The Beguiled because it turns the old movie completely on its head and tells the story of this Union soldier who falls in with a school of repressed (laughs) women of various ages. It tells the story from their point of view. And uh, it was so refreshing to me uh, to, to have this other sensibility on display. And, and I felt the same way about Top of the Lake. I mean, the also. way that I described the, the beguiled to people is it's basically, it's the Don Siegel Clint Eastwood movie with a Sofia Coppola filter and no male gaze. That's it. It's very similar in certain kinds of ways, but it's very meticulously kind of reworked to be more of a feminist kind of narrative. And so it is successful in that, in that sense. Um, but it is I would also... argue that it's successful in any sense. It, well, that it's a really good movie. And, and that it, it, it's a gorgeously shot movie by Philippe uh, Lesseur, the French uh, cinematographer. And it's just um, that we haven't encountered the dialogue and the plotting and uh, this other kind of movie making from Sophia. This is far away from any of the other kind of movie making that she's done. It's well, very it, formal. It, it is, her, in, in other words, her most successful film. I mean, if you were to... to sit Measuring some, success in what way? No, no, no accessible. Because I accessible. think that... Accessible. Yes, as a, just as a kind of genre experience, to, it's a kind of a chamber drama with a thriller element of sorts, which on the one hand, I think is probably for me less exciting because it, it's not showing me something I haven't seen before. But I, I will say that I think that, you know, as a, as a craftsperson of sorts, it really shows what she's good at. It's creating a world, a mood. And Nicole Kidman is really badass. So we should Let's talk about talk her. talk about Nicole Kidman because she, she has really... I, I mean, I've watched one press conference after another, one red carpet after another, one photo call after another, and she just kicks ass. She, and she stood up for women directors yesterday at the, at the Beguiled press conference, really calling on the world to do everything they can to and make this change. And that was the change. culmination, too, sort of like, you've seen me in all these things this week, so here's what I'm going to do about it. So she really is great in this movie. She's playing the school marm. She completely dominates the movie. She was power with delicacy and there are moments where she's ex- she she's expressing a certain um sexuality 
but she's repressing her feelings. And, she, and somehow, Kedman is able to layer all of that so that we know exactly what she's feeling at any moment. Well, and she also benefits here from the contrasts that show her range. In the Yogurt Lantimos movie, Killing of a Sacred Deer, much of what she does is so muted and creepy in a different kind of way, partly because it's a Yorgos Lanthimos movie, but this is chameleon-esque element where it's like she fades into the craziness of it and just becomes a part of his world, you know, and she takes risks. That, I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's a crazy movie. It really was a jolt at 8.30 in the morning to, to sit through this bizarre story of a family tortured by some guy who somehow is able to make their kids suffer from an illness and he has to choose... Colin Farrell basically has to choose which member of his family he can kill to save his children. It's kind of a long story. But Nicole Kidman kind of takes charge at one point or another, and it's just, it's just so fascinating to watch her wrestle with this really abstract kind of experimental material. And then she goes and does the John Cameron Mitchell movie, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is a very broad kind of cartoon. She's really fun. She's very punk. And she's again, she's a powerful figure. She has strength. She has... Um, a, a real uh, she's she's assessing who's talented and and she's supporting and she's mentoring and helping Elle Fanning the visiting alien performer. I I I got a kick out of that movie. I don't know that it should have been in Cannes though because it's one of these movies that's so fun and punk and and it's very John Cameron Mitchell, but I don't think the serious film critics here were necessarily uh, lined up to support it. Well, as a serious film critic, by my own definition, uh, I'm glad they did, because I think the festival needs to create slots for different kinds of cinema to, to really represent the range of filmmaking out there. When they showed big Hollywood blockbusters, it was because, you know, that's part of film culture, and so now they, they do that in a different way. But with this I'm movie... I'm not objecting to them showing it here. I'm objecting to the idea that it didn't help the movie. I think in some ways, though, it, it can't hurt because this movie is not an easy sell. It's an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman story, but which you, has a built-in audience, but John Cameron Mitchell does something different with it. But so. if you play badly and your movie isn't well-reviewed, well then it can hurt you when you go back to where you're trying to sell it again. Yeah, I would, I would agree you that would that's true. You would want it to succeed I in would order agree. for it to help. No, but I think that, that, that it, it's, it, if a movie gets booed here and it's really awful then it's just like, it's a done deal. I don't know how you recover from something like that. You look at things like Sea of Trees. I mean, we just, that was it. That was the end of that movie. It shouldn't have been here. They maybe could have snuck it into the market in a way, not shown at festivals. I don't know. Southland Tales is another one. Exactly. This one is not going to be mythologized. Yeah, I mean... No, this isn't like that. No. But I do love, to, just as, as a side note, that when your movie fails here in a spectacular fashion, you become part of its history. I went to this really lavish ceremony for the Cannes uh, 70th anniversary the other day, and they had a whole montage of movies being booed at Cannes. You know? It's like they embrace that. They even talked about the Lars von Trier persona non grata. For a minute there, I sat up in my seat, and I was like, are they going to invite him back now? Like, is this going to be the big moment? They didn't go that far. But, I mean, the, the whole culture of Cannes is part of its uh, legacy, and it ends up having this trickle-down effect on the way that we talk about movies in a, in a larger sense. I mean, you think about what Nicole Kidman's really doing here. If she is in the awards conversation for Beguiled, which we should talk about, uh, you could argue that Cannes is playing a critical role in that not only by showing Bagaya, but by having all of these films and by having Top of the Lake and all of these different things that, that she is able to do here to kind of contribute to the conversation about women directors could end up somehow being present in the way that the rest of the world sees Nicole Kidman in six months, don't you think? 
Yes, and what I love about her is that she's just embracing the crazy options that she can chase after. She can do a, a Big Little Lies series, which, by the way, has arguably upped her profile and her stardom to a major degree in a sort of populist kind of way um, because it's television. And she can also embrace the most obscure, difficult, challenging uh, parts with directors like Yorgos Lanthimos. And, and she's just going for it. She's gonna, she said she's turning 50 and she's just going to get what she can while she can. And she can seemingly do anything. Well, she also she tells this great story about Kubrick saying, you know, you're not a you're not a lead actress, you're more of a supporting character, and she she kind of used that to to not chase after during you. Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, exactly, and and you can kind of see how that has affected her career over the last fifteen odd years, and now she's maybe kind of rebooting, re reemerging. So, Top of the Lake, right. of course, is the other thing that she did while she was here, and she's superb in that too. A totally different role. She's playing a mother, a professional, a hard charging sort of feminist um, trying to deal with her, her daughter, um, who's played by Alice Englert, who is the daughter of Jane Campion. So it all goes around. They've all been friends from for a very long time, and they can explore this difficult territory. So one other strong uh, performance that I want to talk about is uh, one that just screened today right before we uh, started this recording, which is uh, Robert Pattinson in Good Time, because I've never seen him this involving before. I've to be quite honest with you, been a little on the fence about the guy. If you've seen Lost City of Z, you could see some range there, but... That wasn't a big part. wasn't a big role. He was and good in it. Twilight, I don't think that really asked too much of him, to be honest with you. Sorry to, to the Twihards out there. I mean, I get the appeal on, on a kind of conceptual level, but, um, but this movie... The appeal is real. It started from a real place, but I think that the... the so, I'm, I'm in the, you know, I've been a big fan of the Safdie brothers for a long time since seeing their first film here, The Pleasure of Being Robbed, ten years ago. And I think this film is consistent with this kind of gritty New York dark comedy vibe that they've been going for for a while. But Pattinson really comes alive in the movie. I think it's a very clearly directed performance. It's this guy kind of running around over the course of one night trying to save his brother, and it's got a, almost like a Kafkaesque, Africa Hours vibe to it as it keeps getting more and more absurd, but I was really impressed with what he did here, and I, and I hope that the festival is able to give him that sort of platform to keep doing these sort of interesting things. Well, he things. was here with the David Cronenberg movie Maps of the Stars. Yeah, it was um, not very good, though. And I liked him in The Rover very much, the David Michaud movie, but in that movie, what's interesting is that they... Revor reverse the roles a little bit, where he was playing the sort of slow-witted guy, uh, you know, who who was uh, playing opposite Guy Pierce, and now he's the quick-witted older brother, the wily criminal, the fast-thinking on his feet criminal thug, you know, it's sociopath. A it's a better and, fit, and he. And he's playing with the the younger brother who who can't really take care of himself, and and so uh, I found this a really good part for him, and he does a great job with it. He's very convincingly New York, but the movie itself, while it's really well directed and very slick, um, uh, they're good directors, they have chops. It doesn't have another level. I mean, it's just another gangster movie. 
Oh, I totally disagree with that one. Because the thing about this movie is that it starts in one place and you wind up in a completely different arena than you expected to. It starts off as kind of this heist movie and it feels actually very familiar, I think. This guy wearing a mask with his mentally disabled brother and they're just kind of going around doing this thing. That changes within the first 10 to 15 minutes. Then it's sort of this story about him trying to rescue his brother from the police. Needless to say, he winds up in the bowels of Queens all night long, running around with people you never expected to encounter. It's really fun, it's, and it's really good filmmaking, and you're on the edge of your seat, you and didn't he know carries what was gonna it. Happen. No, I, so, I had no idea what was going to happen. But it was, um, as it ran out of gas in the last third, um, it didn't give me any new ideas. There's one really creepy thing that happens in, that is a total surprise in the last third, which I was afraid would happen, and it did. But other than that, it, 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 it's, the heat, they're good with the um, street casting that they deploy. They're good with uh, keeping you engaged and having fun with what's going to happen and surprising you. But it doesn't give you any new ideas. I'll tell you the new idea. Here's the new idea that I think is consistent with the filmography of these filmmakers, and I'm so glad they're in competition this year is that they, they give you a sense of this gritty realism and then they change it up and you're going to places that can't possibly be real and then they bring you back to reality and there's something about that that I find fascinating and it's very cinematic it's the way that fantasy and reality can kind of have a dialogue and uh, I think people are really going to go for this movie it's going to be a summer release A24 could do really well with it certainly better than Killing of a Sacred Deer which is designed to just like mess with your mind I mean this one kind of invites you in a little bit messes you up and brings you back to Earth. So uh, let's talk about the competition. Um, the One of the movies that we had high expectations for was the Michael Haneke uh, Happy End, uh, which Isabelle Huppert is in, and she's very good, but it really isn't about her. It's about a very messed up little girl. It's another one of a series of movies about bad parenting uh, at Cannes, uh, along with Loveless, uh, which is a terrific Russian film, uh, which is right now the best reviewed of all the movies that have come out so far, at least judging by Screen International. So um, Eric has been keeping track uh, with some goading for me, too, uh, of the um, competition titles. Who do, which one do you think is going to be the lead at this point? Well, I have to preface it, but it, it's highly likely that I will be at least 100% wrong. Um, be, and because last year learned from experience that assuming that a movie that everybody really loves is a front runner for an award that's chosen by a handful of people who are subject to all kinds of whimsical rules. Like a Canadian uh, actor named Donald Sutherland. <laughs> so last year we thought, oh, Tony Erdman, everyone's talking about it. It gets nothing. It was actually eliminated before the final round of voting. This year, it's actually kind of fascinating because there isn't one movie that is a popular favorite, but Loveless may come closer to that. I did have it as number one for a little while, and then I started to hear a lot about confidence that BPM, 120 beats per minute, from Robin Campillo, the, the film about uh, AIDS activists, the, the ACT UP movement in, in 90s era France, uh, was mo a more likely film for a lot of people to support. It's about an important subject, but it's also really well acted. It's very accessible for different points of view, but it's also ambitious in terms of its running time. So that still remains to me a front runner. But I also think that Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck is still in the conversation. I agree with that. It showed really early. Um, it's, a, it's a very light 
gentle film, but at the same time, it's doing some very sophisticated things cinematically. Also black and about white bad color. parenting. Exactly. <laughs> no, but, but it's a Valentine to cinema. It is just an absolute love letter. You know, it has a silent movie in it, which may make it more accessible to people from different parts of the world. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, well-mounted movie, as you say. But anything can happen, really anything. I mean, I keep hearing people say, well... That's fine. Maybe El Monavar will be respectful towards this filmmaker or that filmmaker. But what does Will Smith think? We all want to get inside Will Smith's head, right? Because he represents for us, symbolically, he's like the outsider, you know, mainstream guy. So what does he make of this range of international cinema? It's not the most challenging year. There isn't a three-and-a-half-hour Turkish film, for example, like when the Ceylon There film was won, the two-and-a-half-hour Lodznitsa, which neither of us went to. We, we haven't seen it yet. We'll get to it. I heard positive things. I heard so, negative things. Well, we have different sources. <laughs> we complement each other that way. And, and as we are recording now... And the we inform each other a yeah, lot. Yeah. We do. We do. And, and we hear from different kinds of people about things that really tell us what the bigger picture might look like. We still haven't seen the Lynn Ramsey film. Uh, there are a few other things that haven't played. Francois Ozon this evening. The Polanski. The Polanski is not in competition, but... You know, that could complicate the conversation about Cannes as a whole. And there's one movie that's not in competition that I feel very strongly uh, deserved to be in competition. Um, one of the reasons it's not in competition is that it's a documentary, and they tend to be, Michael Moore is the notable exception, they tend to be uh, shoving the documentaries into other sections. But Agnes Varda's pe- faces, villages, people's places. I get it. Villages, villages. Faces, places. places. So Cohen Media has that film in America, and she is the great 88-year-old icon of French cinema and so respected, and she brings all of her personality and her life and her whimsical nature, all this skill, uh, the, the ability to work visually. She's working with this guy, J.R., who's an artist, and they're popping up in different places in France, putting up these enormous pictures of people that they've just photographed with this sort of mobile art unit, and it's just magical, and I think uh, could be a serious contender for the Oscar. Yeah, I think it, you're onto something with that. It's such a charming movie, and it's it's a real nice sort of representation representation where she is now in her life. I mean, she really seems to treat this as if this were her last film, it would be a career summation. There's a great deal of humanism in it, a, 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 an ability to see beautiful people as human beings and real people, and 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 to figure out ways to bring them out and, and talk to them. It, and I was moved, very moved by her ability to just get in there and do what she had to do, no matter what her body was fighting her. On some level, it may protect a film like this to play out of competition, because the competition films are like the kid that gets shoved into the playground and everyone starts yelling things at them, and they, you either do a really funny dance to entertain people or you fall down on the ground. I mean, it's re- it can be brutal. A movie like this, because it's so gentle and, and light, I could see audiences being ruthless with it in a way that would not serve it, the kind of attention that it's gotten. But it's here. playing. It's probably one of the most popular it's films really well. here. Exactly. So in some ways, it's not hurt by that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, you're it, making it, me wonder, though, whether there's some reason why an 88 year old woman filmmaker simply wouldn't be taken as seriously. Well, it's inevitable that those conversations would come up. And that this has been all I mean, Agnes Varda, you know, 
for many different reasons throughout her career, has never been as appreciated as a part of the French New Wave as some, as the male directors, even though she made some of the best films to come out of that movement. So the Hanukkah is a movie that I was disappointed by. Oh, it's so much fun. That dark, twisted Hanukkah universe. Uh, it, the the way in which this family destroys itself was just a so blast. it's it's brutal and brilliant and it's a movie I thought about for days afterwards and I'm still puzzling over it because it's a movie that doesn't tell you what the hell is going on while you're watching it and you really do have to figure it out afterwards. Well, but I have to. I love the fact that the 75 year old Hanukkah can write a movie that's that's got this morbid sensibility about the way that a family that, that is just sort of, sort of thrives on self-loathing, you know, basically uh, gives that to the next generation. There's a, an older character, the grandfather, the patriarch of the family, and, and, his, granddaughter, and his granddaughter, and they basically see eye to eye by finding mutual ground in, in their disregard Those for the, the world. Those are the best, best scenes in the movie. I think they're the soul But a of lot the of the movie doesn't engage you. The Nobody. mother and the son, not very effective. I thought Huppert is, is so perfectly nasty. And it's almost she too can easy do anything. For her to, she can do yeah, that in her sleep. Great. It's it, there's an incredible shot um, of a of a construction site where part of it falls down right in front of the camera, and that is obviously a metaphor for something else that did affect me. And I, I but I feel like this sort of decline of the bourgeois, you know, the the decline of these people and these values. We've seen that before. Sure, but Hanukkah does it better than most people. By the way, I like that you waited until the American distributor left the room before expressing your reservations on this one. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think they will have a tough time with It'll it. It'll be interesting to see what happens. We should leave some time for audience questions. Please. Because I know we have a limited amount. So um, we have, I believe, a microphone. So if you could uh, just wait until the microphone gets to you so we can make it a part of this. And it's right here. Great. Oh, up here in the front row. I've just seen a couple of uh, films in the Grand Palais, and I guess I've seen a lot of Nicole Kidman, um, um, what's his name, um, Colin Farrell, and also Ellie Fanning. And what's up with that? Why, why are we seeing these actors again and again in the they're competition? They're picking good, good movies. Yeah, I mean, they're not paycheck roles, right? I mean, they're, they, they're not doing these movies. They're doing them for prestige. On some level, I think that's what you get a window into. And we were talking about Robert Pattinson earlier. I mean, these are, these are actors who have a lot of different kinds of opportunities, but they're chasing after roles that give them street cred in a way. And if you can have a movie in competition at, at Cannes, as Nicole Kidman does, or Robert Pattinson does, or Al Fanning, I mean, that just, it does something. Either it... it gives you a different level of awareness or it at least lets you try that out on some level. Are they festival actors? No, there's a range. So. Um, as you say, Nicole Kidman is in Top of the Lake or The Big Little Lies. She, she, goes, she, she runs the gamut. And Colin Farrell, he has changed agents in recent years and he's been picking better. He's been doing say, better movies. Yeah. Festival actors are the, are the people you only see in, the, in really tiny movies. When you, you, a lot of us go to festivals and we see so many different things and you're like, oh, it's the one with that guy who's in the movie that costs $5 every year and um, doesn't have an agent and doesn't want to or, or isn't particularly good or whatever. Those people are out there too. They're probably not in movies that are playing competition at Cannes. So. Other questions? Any in the other way questions? back. And then we'll come back up here. 
What are your thoughts on the the other female director uh, into the light, Naomi's film, um, Radiance? I, I think it might be the French title. Naomi Kawase's film. I didn't see it. I didn't see it either. It, given that it is my favorite film. <laughs> oh. Can you tell us why? Tell us you why liked we should it? see yeah, it. We didn't see it. So. Well, uh, it's a very original premise, and uh, besides the photography being extraordinary. Uh, breathtaking, I should say. It's uh, it's about um, uh, a photographer who is getting blind, so he's about to lose the most precious thing in his life, and at the same time, his encounter with a woman whose job is to actually uh, tr um, do voiceover for films, the description of the films for the blind. So she's a not so good of a writer, and their, their journey together, his overcoming the loss of the most important thing, and his anger, and her, you know, becoming a better, more sensitive, a better writer, uh, their unlikely love story uh, without sight, uh, and also the, matches the, the, the cinematography, because as he's, as he's a photographer and he's losing his eyesight, all the senses are awakened, and we actually live the sound of the film. And there are some extraordinary scenes, like, um, like the audience going into a theater, a blind audience, an audience of blind people going into an, a theater just to see a film and hearing the voice and the commentaries of that woman. You're making me want to see it yeah, very much. Yeah, that's a good selling point. It I mean, is the, the, very original. Also, the Agnes Varda deals with the fact that she's losing her sight. That's true. Which she, is she has another moving aspect I, of yeah, that. Naomi Kawase, it's, it's an unfortunate challenge of this environment that she has been in competition many times, and a lot of people are not big fans of her particular style of narrative filmmaking. And I think at least a lot of people I've spoken to, when they see that she's in competition, they don't you know, kind of bookmark it. And I think we were both sort of prone to doing that almost by habit at this point. I would so. say to you also that there are mornings when you've been up too late the night before and sure. you don't make it to the 8.30 a.m. screening, and I'm guilty of right. But of if that. it was well, the guy who you would have gone, it was a Naomi Kawase, you don't really know. You sometimes pick the ones that you're going to skip. Right. Yeah, so, but, but, but that's the, a great selling point, and I but appreciate other than you the bringing it up. Yeah. Other than the fact that it is a woman and, uh, you know, just like Beguiled is also a female director, the cinematography is actually very, uh, the same, pretty much the same standard. But uh, Naomi's film, everybody was crying. So it's a very no, I emotional film. I saw how they film. responded at the Palais on the screen. I could see that. It, 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 was, it was very well received. Yeah, and, you know, that's one of the good things about playing in the Palais. Is that you have to catch a, up with it. Yeah, exactly. One step at a time here. So I think we have time to take maybe one or two more up here. There's, let's try the guy on the end first here. Yeah. One, two. Um, does Can need Netflix or Netflix need Can? Or what's your take That's on that? That's a good question. Given the rejection lately of their of the Netflix-produced movies, even though two played here. I don't think Netflix needs can, but it, I think the argument could be made for the other way around. Sorry, go ahead, Anne. I was going to say, can needed those filmmakers. Um, they didn't need Netflix. And, and I think that uh, 
Eric's right. There are a lot of people in the movie business now who can't get their movies made by the studios or the independents, and Netflix is stepping up and making them. And so those people are getting those movies made. Um, that's that's the bottom line uh, from the filmmaker point of view. I know we're on a tight schedule yeah. here, so we should probably wrap. But thank you all for being here. It's so great to see you. Thanks for crowd. waiting. Bye bye. Enjoy the rest of the festival.